Well, good morning. So good to be with you. It's an exciting morning for me. It was so exciting. I just uh, woke up at five o'clock, two hours. Uh, when you include the time change, just two hours early and just, uh, just couldn't stand it. So I'm so glad to be with you. Why is it that when we do the fall thing, everybody comes dragging in and we got an extra hour and we do the spring thing, we're like, yay. I don't know what that is. A little less sleep helps maybe. So great to see you. Always nice uh, to be a part of this. When Jesus, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he began with the words, hallowed be your name, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In saying those words, which we know by heart, the world says those words, and yet how closely do we think about them? Jesus is asking us to pray that his name always be held high and holy in the world and that his kingship, his rule on earth would be accepted by all in their hearts and that the will of God, and this one is the one that always probably blows my mind the most, that the will of God would be done on earth just as it's done in now, if that ever happened, what would the Bible call it? I would suggest it would call it restoration. It would be the restoring of all things. It would be the fact that all things would have been made new. That's the way that would happen. This morning, we're going to talk about the restoration of the kingdom of God. And while it is, of course, understood by most here, I believe, that God's kingdom was established, or if you want to use those words, but it came into existence as the kingdom of Christ when Jesus took the throne, when he ascended into heaven, as is spoken by Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, and as was repeated by Peter in Acts 2. Uh, when he preached his sermon, and in verse 34, saying he's sitting at the right hand of God and will reign until all enemies are put under his feet. Our challenge this morning is for us to understand the purpose and message of the kingdom. We have talked a lot in the past number of weeks about the church and about the kingdom, and we've talked about the differences between church and kingdom, that you cannot equate them as identical, though there are, of course, things that are overlapped by, by both. But let's talk about restoration of the kingdom. That's what the disciples ask about in Acts 1. That's what Peter preached in Acts 3, verse 19 through 21, that Jesus would be in heaven until the restoration of all things. So in order to understand this, and by the way, I should just put a parenthetical here. We're going to, there's going to be some of the things I'll talk about this morning that will be new to some of you. The passages probably will not be very new to you, but we will look at them more carefully. But we'll have the opportunity tonight to talk about this more and to answer any questions that you have. So if you have questions, great idea to write them down now, 
and then we will be able to address those kinds of things. So in order to understand restoration, we have to start with what was lost. We, we must understand what we lost that God had actually put into plan and that what he was going to do for us, we have to then understand how and what we did lose. And let's just summarize that by the first couple of chapters, the first two or three chapters of Genesis. In chapter 1 and verse 27, God said he made man in his own image. And of course, we lost that. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that everything that Christ is doing is to bring us back into his image. We also notice that he said we would have dominion over all the earth, and we lost that. We do not have dominion over the, all the earth, and all things on earth are not subjected to us. We also know that we lost the rest. God intended that his seventh-day rest would be pictured in the garden and was pictured in the garden and that that seventh-day rest would endure forever and that in Hebrews 4 we have the opportunity to again attain that rest. We also noticed a beautiful garden scene where everything was provided, both rivers of, of life and trees of life of all sorts. God was giving us life and goodness and most importantly, we see the picture that God had made us one with him and foretold that oneness by giving us the picture and experience in a marriage relationship. All of these things were things that God created for us to enjoy, and all of these things were the things that were lost in the beginning, in the garden when sin came. Now, let's take a little quick journey and if you'll open your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Psalms, Psalm 8, you will, you will see here something that is said that references what we had lost even in the beginning and what we have just noted. So in Psalm chapter 8, or Psalm 8, we notice beginning then at verse 3, when the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, the fish in the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is interesting that as, you, as we read that, we have the sinking feeling that that really hasn't happened yet, and we would be exactly right. Because if you'll open your Bibles also and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, the Hebrew writer will make that very point. And we talked about this at some point last year in, in Hebrews. But what we see is, is that God, when God places something, as he does in Psalms and as David recites, when he says something like that, he is making a point that this is set in stone. This is going to happen. Even though you have not yet realized it, he has said that it would happen. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, we notice beginning at verse 5 that the Hebrew writer makes reference to the psalm. And I want you to pay careful attention to a few words. Verse 5. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Please stop there and note those words. God subjected the world to come. He did not subject it to angels, but he subjected it to man, as he is going to point out. He goes on to say, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, you made him for a little while, notice the emphasis on little while, it was not a permanent in, intention, you made him a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You feel crowned with glory and honor right now? He is putting all, everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, notice the word subjection twice there, he left nothing outside his control. Notice those, that phrase. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I kind of wipe my brow at that point and go, Phew, I was thinking I was missing something. <laughs> yes, I was, because we do not yet see all things in his control or all things in subjected to him. But, verse 9, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made a little lower than, uh, lower than the angels. That sound like what, how we were made, yes. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, the same glory and honor that he's promised man, because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now watch verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And goes on to say that the one who sanctifies and the one who sanctified is one, is now made one. He's bringing many sons to glory. That sounds like restoration, doesn't it? That sounds like the very thing that we have been wanting and waiting for. We do not see all things in subjection to man now, but we do see Jesus, who is made the intent of suffering for us and then leading us as a pioneer or trailblazer to bring us to that point in which we are also crowned with glory and honor, all things in subjection to us, the world to come in subjection to us. I'm simply using the words of Scripture here. That ought to be quite notable in our minds and make us even wonder as to how this would all be. Those are the pictures that he gives in the text. Now let's talk for a moment about just this word restoration and the restoration of the kingdom. Uh, I know for myself, and maybe this has gone on for you as well, that when you think of the prophecies that talked about the coming kingdom, or when you have thought about Jesus and John the Baptist saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you might have thought in terms of a brand new kingdom. Oh, there's going to be a new kingdom come. No, there's always been God's kingdom. God, God has never not had a kingdom. Psalm 9, 7 says, the Lord sits enthroned forever. Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God has always had his kingdom. That's not, that's not what's happening here. 
It's that Jesus now has been enthroned as the king. He sits on, in fact, the throne of David. Isn't that amazing? That David sat on the throne of God. And here is now Jesus, the Messiah, foretold to sit on the throne of David. He is sitting next to the right hand of God. Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the, the idea is a new kingship. And the kingdom then reflects the king. And thus in that way it's a renewed kingdom, a restored kingdom. And the idea of that kingdom is to restore things back to the way God intended. Here's a picture, and there's many passages we could have used for this, but I've always thought I, Amos 9, 11, and 12 is so good. It's quoted by James in Acts chapter 15, verse 13 through 18. And he says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and, and uh, raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So we stop right there and notice that the tabernacle or booth or tent of David, in other words, his kingdom has been crushed. It's fallen down. It is in ruins and he's picturing it that way, especially spiritually, even though when Amos wrote, Jerusalem was still in existence and so was Israel. But it is all fallen apart. It is nothing. So what is the reason for the raising up of this kingdom, the restoring of it? He goes on to say, Rebuild it in the days of old, that they may possess. And I'd like you to note clearly this idea of possess that they might possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Who's going to possess? God's new kingdom, God's new people are going to possess Edom, the arch enemy of God for centuries. He's going to possess Edom. He's going to possess all the nations. So not just Christ is going to, not just the Messiah is going to, but he's even pointing out that his kingdom and his people will possess all of these. So you see the very clear picture of restoration. And James proclaims in, James, in Acts 15 that that was beginning, that the, all the nations were now being brought into the kingdom, the gospel is being preached, but eventually the kingdom would possess all nations. We have noticed this before, and I won't uh, belabor this. I just mentioned it in Acts 1 and verse 6. After Jesus has talked to, talked to the apostles for 40 days about the kingdom of God, what was their question? Is it, Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now the question is absolutely a good question. There was going to be a restoration of the kingdom. Their question is, is now the time? Jesus says, not for you know time, that's set in the Father's rule, but here's what you should know, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will preach the gospel all the way to the end of the earth. The gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. The restoration is going to begin. These are things that we have, I know, discussed before. And then Peter himself mentions this in his sermon. But notice carefully, Acts 3, 19 through 21. Christ has gone into heaven that he may send the Christ, talking about a second coming, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things. 
What does that tell you? Restoring has not happened yet, but it will be completed when he returns. The time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The restoring of the kingdom was talked about the prophets long ago. Talked about all that period of time. So when the prophets spoke, they weren't just talking about the days in Acts 2 and the establishment of the church or the beginning of Christ's kingdom. They were talking about the full restoration of it. I think that's important to note because I know we've all struggled. I certainly have with, well, how much of the Old Testament prophets am I supposed to see that has already happened, and what about the Old Testament prophets have spoken that has not yet happened? I think this passage very clearly shows there are many things that have not yet happened, that the restoring of all things is spoken of by that, and that restoring will not be completed until Jesus comes back the second time. So please keep that also in your mind. Now let's move from there and talk about what it took to make this restoration take place. It's the defeat of the, of the kingdom of Satan. And we're aware that Jesus refers to Satan as having a kingdom in Matthew chapter 12. That Satan would not defeat his own kingdom. So he has a kingdom of which he is the king over his kingdom. And he rules at present over all the earth. Remember when that Jesus was tempted by Satan? And, and uh, Satan said, here, I, I, have, I, own all, I own the whole world. I will give it all to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. He's in control of that. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. So there's, there is this kingdom of Satan. And we see how that began. You might remember in Genesis 3.15, uh, God makes a prophecy about this. And so notice uh, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So you can see even the battle going on between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, and the eventual crushing of the head of Satan by one of the offspring that comes out of the woman. That's pretty plain, I think, to most Christians. Follow up with that with the passage that was read for us this morning, in Psalm 2. and Psalm 2, there is a battle still going on, wasn't there? There is a battle between the nations that are raging. They are upset and, and angry that God is going to put a king on his throne and that they do not want to submit to that king. And he turns and tells them that he laughs at them and that he will set the king on the throne. And when he sets that king on the throne, then they better submit or if they do not, he will crush them with a rod of iron. And so you see the power of the kingship of Jesus. But there's an interesting little statement that's in the middle of Psalm 2, and that's there in verse 8. God says to, the, God the Father says to Jesus, his, the David's Lord, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now notice we saw that before, didn't we? So now we're seeing it again. 
The nations and the, and the nations become Jesus' heritage. They become his possession. He conquers them, but also brings them and the ends of the earth. He will own them and possess them. They will be his. So even in Psalm 2, you see this, you see this statement of things are going to happen, and things are, are happening, and things uh, are prophesied as going to also happen uh, in, the, in the future. Look at Psalm 110 now, while we're in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 110, quoted many, many times, of course, in the New Testament. Psalm 110 gives us also a picture of what this restored kingdom and what is going to take place. Most of us are aware of the first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God the Father saying to David's Lord, the Messiah, who has not come to the earth yet, but of course was in existence, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. God is then setting, promising to set his, his son on the throne, set his king on the throne, who will subdue the enemies. Okay, now skip on down to verse 5. We'll talk about the middle here tonight. 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Now you're seeing the accomplishment of this. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses over corpses. Uh, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Here is, the, here is the battle cry of this great king. He goes into battle. He crushes the nations. He's subduing the enemies, as was talked about in verse 1. And he gets done and he goes to the brook and he refreshes himself with water after conquering and making the victory. That's a whole picture of the beginning of, 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 of time and then all the way until when Jesus returns and we see, see him conquering the nations. So here's, I'm just setting up some pictures here. You know this passage as well. Seth talked about it last Sunday night. In Revelation 7, now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels, and of course they were cast down, and now and the power of your king has come, and your kingdom and Jesus then reigns. But the battle went on, as Seth pointed out, the battle continu continues to this day until there's the restoring of all things. Now, there's the introduction. <laughs> The conclusion just takes 10 minutes, so that's okay. Uh, but there is the setup for this. Now, what's the ultimate purpose of this restored kingdom? Here's where I think we oftentimes have not seen as clearly, I certainly haven't, as we should as we look at this. So let's look at a few passages that, again, people are fairly aware of. We'll start with Daniel chapter 7. And when Daniel sees this great vision of beast coming out of the sea, we see uh, in the interpretation of the Daniel says in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, something we see fulfilled in Acts chapter 1. And I saw in the night visions, a, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
He came to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. There's Jesus' ascension into heaven, coming to God called the Ancient of Days. And verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him as dominion as an everlasting dominion. Emphasis there. Which will not pass away his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. But in the meantime, the prophecy goes on. Daniel's vision goes on from verse 15 down through verse 26 with what is going to happen in the battle against the nation, the fourth empire, which would be Rome, and the battle that would happen there. But now please look at verse 26 and 27. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, the dominion of the kingdoms of the world, shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to, who's it going to be given to? Who is the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven given to? They should be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. That sound like what we hear in Jesus' prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your name be hallowed among all. That's what he's doing here. That's doing the same thing as was predicted in Hebrews chapter 2. Go on from there and please turn, and this is probably a little more obscure text to most of you, but please turn to Isaiah 25. You go way back about three years ago when we studied Isaiah, you'll see some of this. Isaiah 25, and notice beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 25, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Now please notice there this fortified city, this city the heap. He's talking about the, a world city. He's talking about all the evil who are on the same, same uh, uh, wavelength. They're following the same evil. They're talk, talked about as a world city here. You see this in the context uh, even before and after this in Isaiah. Therefore, verse 3, he says, Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by a shade of a cloud, as the song of the ruthless is put down. All right, so there's the conquering of the enemies. All right, now notice verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, a, make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-defined. 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That sounds like the end. He's going to reign until all enemies are put under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, death is the last enemy that will be destroyed. That's what he's talking about here. And then these very familiar words in the book of Revelation, he will swallow death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will, be, will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. I especially like those last words. This culmination comes, this great feast that Jesus talked about in parables and talked about the coming feast and sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now the feast has come and the people sing how they, we waited for Him, just as we wait, as we wait for Him. And he says, we waited, and now it is this, we can be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So what we see here is this everlasting kingdom. Some of the things we have read about were fulfilled at the coming of the Messiah. And we read about it in the New Testament and experience today. Some of these things are being fulfilled still and ongoing until Jesus returns. It's a restoration of the preaching of the gospel and people are being restored to God and to His kingdom. But some of the prophecies extend even beyond this earthly time and extend even into eternity. And when the restoration is enjoyed, and that's the picture of the feast, the restoration is enjoyed by us as we have been waiting carefully for that day then to come. Now, consider a final three passages here. In Revelation 3, verse 20 and 21, when Jesus concluded his letter to Laodicea, he said these words, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I sat down with my father on his throne. Here is what is granted to us, to sit down with Jesus on his throne. Paul even said this in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He will raise us up. He has raised, past tense, raised us up to sit with him in the heavenly places. And now when we conquer, we will literally sit with him on the throne of God, the same throne that Jesus sits. Now we're beginning to see the fullness of the restoration and the fullness of the plan that God had when he said in Hebrews 2, in Psalm 8, in Genesis 1, that all things would be in subjection to man and that there would be nothing out of his control and that he would be crowned with glory and honor. All of this coming to pass as the book of Revelation begins to talk about it. And then go to Revelation chapter 21. And we see then the final words as all of this comes together with the fullness of the restoration. Revelation 21. Now we've just had in chapter 20, Judgment Day. 
Those who were wicked cast in the lake of fire, all the enemies have been destroyed. Those found written in the book of life are, are, uh, are, are taken into the kingdom of God. 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Just as we know, the present heavens and earth will be destroyed. They'll be gone, but then he creates what he calls a new heaven and a new earth. No idea what that uh, entails, all the details, of course, but we have that. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, that's us. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's kind of like, we talk about going to heaven, but God talks about it with heaven coming to us. It is one of the things that always perplexed me in the Bible. When we would read with, in the garden, God came down and dwelled with Adam and Eve. And then we read in the tabernacle that when the tabernacle was built at the end of Exodus 40, God came down and filled the tabernacle with his glory. And then when Solomon built the temple, we see God again coming down and filling the temple with his glory. And on all the prophecies and in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and verses 16 and 17, God coming and dwelling with man. And you see the same thing in Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 36. God comes down and dwells with us. He just basically brings heaven down and makes this new place. Do you remember when Jesus said in the 14th chapter of John, I go away to prepare a place for you. I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare that place, I will bring you to be where I am. We will be together with him. And there is the picture he gives going on in the text. He says, he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We just read that Isaiah 25. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Here is that possession of the kingdom and of all kingdoms as he has spoken. And then our, finally, our final text in chapter 22 and verse 1. Notice how this concludes. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. Remember when Jesus told the woman at the well that if you had asked, I would have given you living water. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, that's because the enemies are destroyed. But the throne of God, the Lamb, will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. Nobody ever gets to do that, and we get to do that. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. We are glad to show His ownership of us. 
and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And now watch. And they, talking about the saints, shall reign forever and ever. There's restoration. There's the restoration of the kingdom. Now, anybody think that when you say kingdom, you should think church? That would be laughable, wouldn't it? It goes far beyond the people, but the restoration of all things and making everything new. So the key here is, when you see the end of this in verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take of life without price. Everything in Scripture is God telling us, you don't want to miss this. We grew up thinking, you don't want to be punished. Well, of course not. But more importantly, you don't want to miss this. This is something beyond anything I can imagine. And yet he set it up in the beginning. We lost it. And the beautiful, loving, merciful God that we serve reverses all curses and is nothing but good and brings the great blessing. The restoration of the kingdom is why we're here. The restoration of the kingdom is what we preach. The restoration of the kingdom is what needs to be received. And that was what was foretold by John the Baptist when he said, in the wilderness, you're a wilderness. Come out of the wilderness, for the Lord is coming. If there's any way we can help you in your service to God this morning, you have an opportunity to let that be known. I'm going to sing a song in just a moment. Please, think about your condition. If we can help you in any way, talk to us afterwards. Or if you know what you need to do to be saved, you have that opportunity now. All together we stand and what we sing.